You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. If you have your Bible, would you turn to Romans 8? To that passage that we read earlier, we'll be referring to that uh, a number of times. Let's pray. Our Father, as we turn now to your word, pray, God, that you'll give us the concentration that we need so that our minds and hearts and wills might be open to your word, might be shaped and directed by your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to talk to you Uh, for the time remaining to us, about the grace of God. And it's a powerful subject. Uh, The whole Bible actually uh, talks about the grace of God from Genesis to Revelation. And particularly, I I want to focus in on verse uh, 32 of Romans 8. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In his excellent book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer has written these words, and I quote, The grace of God is love freely shown towards guilty sinners, contrary to their merit and indeed in defiance of their merit. It is God showing goodness to persons who deserve only severity and had no reason to expect anything but severity. God's grace is the keynote of biblical Christianity, and any attempt to understand the character of God must focus upon the truth that God is the God of all grace, as Peter puts it in 1 Peter 5 and verse 10, and that the Christian gospel is the gospel of the grace of God, Acts 20 verse 10. But to help us think biblically about the the nature of God's grace, then obviously we need to turn to Scripture. The difficulty is that we have an embarrassment of wealth in material available to us. The Bible overflows with this truth. But for the focus of the study, I want to concentrate on that verse that I read to you, Romans 8 and verse 32. And to set it in its context, Paul is writing to Christians at Rome who've been going through the mill spiritually and in all kinds of ways. They've been suffering every kind of trial and hardship. If you look at verse 18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, Peter, or, uh, Paul is including himself here, but he's including the Romans. The Romans know what he's talking about. The, the Christians at Rome know exactly what he's speaking about here. And his encouragement takes the form of a, a, revolution, a revelation of who God is and what God is like, leading to the great challenge of verse 31 of chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? This God that he's been speaking about, if this God is for us, who can be against us? 
Thereafter, he argues that the grace of God revealed in the gospel will be more than adequate for the needs of his children. The very next verse, 32, takes us to the heart of how God has acted in sending his son. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So these words are packed full of truth. And really what I want to do is just simply unpack these words and, uh, and see where it leads us. And, and I want to do that in three parts. And here's part one. I'm just taking it as it comes in the verse. And here's what it says. God did not spare his own son. God did not spare his own son. Now, we're all familiar with the language of sparing someone what is painful and causes suffering. Indeed, if we are parents at a human level and our children are going through some kind of physical or mental anguish or emotional suffering, we will naturally say, if it were in my power, I would spare you this. Now, God himself refers to that human emotion of a parent toward its child and acknowledges that he experience it, experiences it at an infinite level. In Malachi 3.17, Thy will be done, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, I will spare them just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And yet here is the great mystery. God did not spare his own son. And, and we read this verse, and we're familiar with this verse, and I think we skip over this so easily. God did not spare his own son. Notice how that son is described. He is God's own, or only, or only begotten son. And the point is that God has many sons and daughters by adoption, but the Lord Jesus Christ is his only begotten son. You remember how he was described at his baptism. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased, Matthew 4, 17. But listen, God the Father did not spare that beloved son. Of course, the classic occasion in the whole of the Old Testament when a man did not spare his own son occurs in Genesis 22. You know the story of Abraham offering up Isaac. The Lord said to Abraham, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son whom you love, and I want you to offer him up as a sacrifice. And Abraham sets out. And, oh, you know the parallels between that story and, and the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. It was a three-day journey and how he carried the wood and, and, and how he takes him and he, and he builds a, an altar and uh, he, he puts the kindling under his son and binds his son and he's about to plunge a knife into him and, and offer him up as a sacrifice and suddenly there's a voice from heaven. The Lord calls out, do not lay a hand on the boy. And Abraham looked up, you remember, and he saw a ram caught in a thicket. 
by its horns, and he recognized it as the provision of God's grace. And so he sacrificed the ram as a burnt offering instead of his son. And Genesis 22:16 records what God said to Abraham at that point. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. You see what has happened? Even though Abraham did not spare Isaac, God did. Abraham was willing to give up Isaac, but God spared him. God intervened and God provided a substitute for Isaac to die in his place. But the great mystery lies precisely here. For God's own son, there was no substitute. No substitute. God did not spare him. And this is the more remarkable when you think that Jesus cried out in Gethsemane to be spared. My father, he said, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. But God the Father did not spare his own son. Now, inevitably, we ask the question, why was this? Why was this? Why, why did Jesus' plea go unanswered? Was it because the Father's love for his Son had changed? Well, all heaven would respond never. But the question remains. And the answer is found in this way. When we see Abraham not sparing Isaac, we cry out how he loved God. Don't we? When Abraham was prepared to sacrifice Isaac, we say, we say, how he must have loved God. And when we see God not sparing Christ, then we need to say, how God loved me. He loved me to such an extent that he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And when he says that, expresses that expression, us all, he means all the Christians at Rome that he's writing to, and all the Christians that Christ died for. And it's this truth that comes through the hymn writers who are overwhelmed as they write, amazing love, or love so amazing, so divine, amazing grace. This is God the Father and God the Son united in a love for sinners that must make the universe tremble. In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah! What a Savior! That is the ultimate evidence of the grace of God. God did not spare his own son. But if you look at the next phrase, the second phrase here, he gave him up for us all. That's the second thing we want to look at. He gave him up for us all. In the 19th century, Octavius Winslow 
wrote these memorable words, and I quote, Who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Unquote. That is what God the Father was doing at Calvary, and it is the ultimate expression of his free, unmerited grace. And, and, you know, we will only grasp this truth if we recollect what the Father was giving up or handing over the Son to suffer. The Bible unfolds this to us in terms of what, what Christ became. In Philippians 2, 7 to 8, Paul tells us that he who in very nature was God and shared the Father's glory, became man. Not only that, but also became a servant. He whom angels and archangels had been created to serve became himself a servant. But that was only the beginning. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, Paul tells us that Jesus became sin for us. I, I, I read that every time I read it. I can't get my head around that. The sinless Son of God became sin for us. He who knew no sin actually became sin to accomplish our salvation. And then in Galatians 3.13, the apostle takes us into depths we simply cannot fathom when he tells us that the Son of God in whom the Father was well pleased became a curse for us. The grace of God to sinners is exhibited in the cry of Jesus on Calvary, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That use of the word all here means not all without exception when it says he gave him up for us all. Not all without exception, but all without distinction. The implication being that there is no sinner too bad, there's no life too marred, no heart that is too hardened, no soul that has drifted too far, but that the grace of God can bring that soul to himself in Jesus Christ and make him a new creature. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. And then the third phrase here, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The apostle's conclusion depends on the fact that, that we have the evidence before us that all God's dealings are gracious. All God's dealings are gracious. The contrasts are, are striking. The grace of God is measured by the fact that he has given and not withheld his own son. How then could we suspect that he might withhold any lesser thing from us? Whatever we need throughout our Christian pilgrimage, we have a guarantee in God's incomparable grace that he will supply it. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? 
That includes strength for the weak, hope for the despairing, peace for the restless, supplies for needs that we never, that we could never have foreseen, and circumstances that we never could have envisaged. Nothing is excluded from the divine guarantee since the grace of God is without measure. And notice that all that God provides for us in his grace is along with him. Along with him. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? We need to remember that that God's grace does not simply mean that that grace that Christ was given for us. It also means that by that grace, all things along with Christ are given to us. All the riches of God are in Christ Jesus, and those riches are unsearchable, Paul says in another place in Ephesians 3 and 8. Well, what conclusions then do we need to draw from this teaching about the grace of God for our own lives? Maybe I'm speaking to someone here this afternoon and you're troubled about your sin, troubled about failure in your past and you're cast down because it seems that nothing could be adequate to deal with the sense of guilt that you have and shame. Maybe I'm speaking to someone like that here today I must tell you that the grace of God is always greater than your greatest sin. Paul puts it strikingly in Romans 5 and verse 20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Think about Paul himself. A soul of Tarsus. He was on a journey to Damascus, and it says he was breathing out hatred. He wanted to put Christians to death. He, he was involved in putting Christians to death. What an awful past he had. Where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Perhaps I'm speaking to you and you've never known God's saving grace. Oh, we have an amazing God. A God of amazing grace. John Newton, isn't that what he said? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And John Newton, before his conversion, was just such a wretch. Perhaps others are apprehensive about the future. Knowing your own past weakness and tendency to stray, you fear the unknown future. Maybe the threatenings, the threatenings and complexities of the 21st century threaten to overwhelm you. You need to know, you need to know that the God of all grace is not the great I was, he's the great I am whose love is as great as his power and knows neither measure nor end, to use the words of a hymn, how good is the God we adore. 
He's the great I am that appeared to Moses in front of the burning bush. He's the same God that led the people out of captivity in Egypt. He's the God of Daniel. He's the God, let me mention Jonah again. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So hold, hold back from God no more. Let his matchless grace embrace you. Trust him utterly for every part of your life. Put your confidence in him alone. After all, where else can you put it? And not only do that individually, but do it corporately. A congregation in a vacancy, there's always a sense of, you know, what's going to happen? Remember, this God of all grace knows the end from the beginning, and all things work together for good. Isn't that what we read? We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. We've been called according to his purpose. So he's working out his purpose for you corporately as a corporation, but he's also working out his purpose for you individually. And, and I don't know about you, but these are very uncertain days, aren't they? I, I, I can hardly listen to the news. The news is so bad every day, it seems to go from bad to worse. But here's what we need to hold on to. The God of all grace. There is a God in heaven, and he's working out his purpose, and everything is being brought to a climax when the Lord Jesus Christ will return. People are worried, you know, about climate change and the, have to save the planet. God will determine when the world will end. Nobody else. The God we worship, the God we love, him who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? So, brothers and sisters in Christ, be encouraged today. Be encouraged. He's working out his purpose. He's working out his plans for you as an individual believer, for you corporately as a congregation. And may we be encouraged as we go out into this week, whatever this week holds for us. But what about those of you who as yet are strangers to grace? Well, where's your hope? As you listen to the news, as you watch what's going on in the world, where do you look? for strength, for encouragement. Let me point you to Jesus, the only Savior of men, the only Redeemer of God's elect. He offers you eternal life. He invites you to put your trust in him, to come into his family. And then this promise is for you. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, you're included in the us. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And to him be all the praise and the honor and the glory. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.